Hi, and welcome to Design Emergency. I'm Alice Rawsthorne, co-founder of Design Emergency with Paola Antonelli, and we're thrilled that in this episode of our podcast, we'll meet a designer who's at the forefront of West Africa's dynamic new design culture, Nifemi Marcus-Bello. So Nif, welcome to Design Emergency. Thank you, Alice. Nif was born in Nigeria and was brought up there and in Zambia before moving to the UK to study industrial design in Leeds. After completing his master's in 2013, he returned to Lagos, where he worked for the architect Kunle Adeyemi and then for Mass Design Group in Rwanda before opening his own studio in Lagos in 2017. Nif has since designed objects that are steeped in West African culture. Most are inspired by the vernacular products he sees in daily use in Nigeria and its neighbours, including Lagos water carts and Beninese bamboo blinds. His work is also influenced by 19th century Igbo sculpture. Nif then identifies local makers with the necessary skills and collaborates with them on fabricating his objects, which are so smart, resonant and engaging that he won last year's Hublot Design Prize. So Nif, beginning at the beginning, how and why did you become interested in design? I think for me, the most, the earliest memory I have of engaging with design, so to speak, was actually making. Um, at the age of 13, um, after school, my mom put me into an apprenticeship program where I started welding um, in the streets of Lagos and then also doing carpentry as well. I think I did that for about a year and a half. Um, and for me, I think that was the introduction to quote unquote design through making. And what impact did your studies in Leeds have on your expectations of a, a design career and what you could do as a designer? So Leeds was extremely interesting. First of all, I actually didn't go to Leeds to study design. I wanted to study architecture. And I did a foundation course in design where I was studying ah. history of art. And through a lot of discussions, and I'd say luck as well, I stumbled into the School of Mechanical Engineering for an open day and then walked through the product design department and I was blown away. Because before then, of course, I knew that you could study design, but I didn't realize that you could actually combine two of my passions, which was understanding how things were being made from an industrial standpoint and also creating these products. And the reason why I'm breaking it down that way is because, again, Product design was in the School of Mechanical Engineering and there was a lot of intuition into what um, the future of manufacturing could be and also looking at contemporary manufacturing of the day as well. So for me, that combination was what kind of drived me into wanting to actually study product design. And of course, falling back to making as a young teenager in Lagos, I thought it was a match, it was a match made in heaven. And in general, I think one thing that Leeds did for me was open my eyes to the integration of design from a contemporary standpoint. So how design kind of is being used within society and the importance of design within a society. I think that was really something that was kind of instilled in us. And even in my final year, one of the things that, was, that I found intriguing was design policy integration. And learning a lot about that, of course, kind of 
pushed me to curiosity to how this could be implemented in West Africa or, or Nigeria as well. And so was that why you decided to go back to Lagos to practice design? Yes, yes and no. Of course, there were personal reasons. But majorly, the reason why I came back to Lagos was as a young, naive designer, thinking that I could, <laughs> I could figure out a way to introduce um, design policies and kind of integrate it through society. And of course, when I got here, reality struck. I realized that <laughs> there, was, there were a lot of things that weren't in place and that I hadn't even started practicing design from a contemporary standpoint in West Africa to kind of understand what it means to be a designer or how design can be implemented or contemporary design can be implemented on a day-to-day basis. So what were the things that were missing? I'd say one of the major things I realized was the lack of what, I, what it meant to design in, the lack of discussion around what it meant to kind of design in Lagos, in, in contemporary Lagos. I'd say this, and I keep using the word, word contemporaries because we've always been, we've always designed, of course, we've always made things. But I think as, of course, as time evolves and new technology comes in and the ways, modern ways of kind of living, and there's also a certain subtle introduction and even in some, in some aspects, large introduction of globalization through technology or through entertainment, um, I really thought the thing that was missing the most was how design kind of played a role into all of this and how to kind of identify that. And I knew that it would take some time and I knew that I would have to learn and have discussions with peers and um, some contemporaries or even older designers or designers from a different generation. And I think throughout working in various architectural firms or types, different types of firms in Lagos, I kind of gathered all of that information and it kind of steered me into the right direction. And how has the Lagos design scene changed since then? I mean, obviously it's a rapidly evolving city that's expanding at a frenzied pace and every aspect of digital culture, visual culture, style culture in Lagos has changed significantly in recent years. Has the same applied to the design scene? Yes, it has. It really has. I think there are a lot of people, I mean, from past times, West African design in general for me, or African design in general for me has always been contextual. And I think it's been contextual to materials, people, and our way of life. And I think because again, a lot of, a lot of things are evolving and the way we are kind of living our lives now is totally different. A lot of people are posing questions through design or, or, or giving answers through design as well. So I think it's rapidly evolving, even from a material standpoint, because new materials are being introduced, old age materials are being identified again to kind of understand what it means to combine those old age materials with current new, currently new technologies as well. So I think it's rapidly changing, drastically. For me, not to... Not to shoot ahead too much but I think even from a design language standpoint from form to functionality 
a lot will come out of Nigeria and West Africa because of the context that we find ourselves in in, in today's times. Okay, well, we'll move on to the broader context later, but, but talk first about how your focus on the making traditions of Nigeria and elsewhere in West Africa have been such an important influence on your own work and how it's evolved. I think one of the major questions I asked myself um, before starting the studio was, is it important for contemporary African design to exist in a global stage? This might sound like a very, <laughs> it might sound of like a, a very weird question, um, but the reason why I asked myself this question was because there was, again, because of globalization, a lot of products were being introduced to West Africa. We weren't making anything that was being mass produced or even batch produced for us to use, in my opinion, as much as we thought we did. A lot of it was coming from Asia, sometimes Europe, and even in, in some aspects, South America. And one of the questions that, one of the things that I thought I wanted to address was, how can we kind of look inwards to start creating products? Maybe not from a large, large scale, but maybe from a smaller scale and figure out what it means to kind of design in that sense in Africa today or West Africa today. And the thing that I realized was a lot of products were actually being made, but they weren't being labeled as design products and the reason why they weren't being labeled as design products was because there wasn't really a designer behind it or a factory or a company behind it instead it was day-to-day -day people kind of creating intriguing products to kind of enhance their daily lives or create job opportunities for themselves so one of the things i decided to do was dive into objects where I, which i identified as anonymously designed objects um, across Lagos and hopefully eventually West Africa and start to sort of document these products and break them down to their bill of materials, break them down to their assembly and really understanding how society um, has start, started to create these products and distribute them through a very unique um, distribution channel as well. So once I found out and realized that, wow, okay, for example, the Kwali, which is, which is um, a handheld station that's used to, sell, to sell products in, um, in traffic, and realized, okay, this product is actually an amazingly well-designed object. How can we sort of tap into that understanding and materiality, and even, again, distribution channels of materials to start creating products and learn from it? So I think that those are kind of the thoughts that were circling around my mind once um, when I started the design studio. So you've obviously drawn inspiration from vernacular objects, but also historic artifacts, 19th century Igbo sculpture, for example. So was this and your research into local fabrication and, and ways of making, was that going on in parallel? Yes, it is. I mean, I always, I feel like you always have to kind of, maybe it's the, I think I've heard this saying from an elder where it's like, you always have to look at the past 
to be able to move forward in the to move forward in the future quickly. And for me, I've always if I always try. I'm always intrigued with what had been done before in West Africa, and I think it's important to kind of show that respect as well. Again, to understand that design has happened, maybe not on a global stage, so to speak, but it has happened on the continent, and to understand and respect the materials that have been used, and also to kind of make sure to to consider anyone who's already making on the continent while you're thinking about new technology that's already been introduced. So I think that juxtaposition and introduction to like old age and new technology is very important because we respect our artisans here. There's, it's always a collaboration. It's always discussions. Um, and I think even the artisans kind of will benefit from new technology because again, as a designer, I can always be the middleman but there's some certain times where, of course, I'll take myself out of it and the artisan can actually just interact with the technology themselves and beautiful things can, can happen out of that. So I think for me, it's extremely important to kind of fuse both. And I would also, I always urge um, discussions with peers to always look at old age technology and bring in new technology as well. And of course, there are fascinating parallels with the work of architects on the continent, like David Adje, Francis Carré, Mariam Kamara, all of whom are also investigating traditional ways of working, traditional building materials and, and construction techniques. So it's fascinating to hear how similar principles are at play in, in product and industrial design. So um, I've asked you to choose three examples of your projects so you can describe your approach in in detail and the first and there are images of all the projects that NIF is talking about on our design emergency feed at design.emergency on Instagram so go there to see them but the first is the LM stool. Yes um, it's funny because I feel like this has been a it's a cult classic now and a favorite of because we've sold about 200 to date. I think, and a large number of it has also been actually outside Nigeria. For me, this product is actually dear to my heart because I think it was the first product I actually designed once I st when I started the studio. And it was actually driven by the approach of, for research. And again, understanding the context in which we're, we're, in, we're living in in Lagos today. And in Lagos, we don't have 24-hour electricity, unfortunately. So everyone has had to kind of lean on personal backup generators. And because of this, there was, there's been a large increase on the assembly of generators and production of generators in Lagos. And with most generators, you have a metal casing to cover the um, engineering that's, of course, been used to kind of to bring um, electricity into the, into, into the homes. And when I was doing my research on manufacturing, one of the things I found out was that a lot of companies started to exist who were creating these um, metal casings. So I approached one, which was an indigenously owned company, and spoke to them about creating an object. I didn't have an idea what the object would be, but I thought maybe they would be open for collaboration. 
So after having discussions going back and forth, I realized that they would actually manufacture, manufacture the product, but I, if only I don't change their assembly line and kind of embrace their assembly line and um, manufacturing techniques available. So what I did was I walked through the factory, spoke to the engineers, even spoke to other stakeholders, sort of the transportation people, the packaging people, etc. And after that, I think a couple of weeks later, I walked in with a sketch, uh, which was the sketch of the LM stool, and basically showed it to them and created an engineering drawing around their, their production and manufacturing line. We created a prototype. Um, I think they were super intrigued because, again, all they had been creating were generator casings and coverings for electric circuit boards. So it kind of opened their mind to the possibility of introducing and collaborating with designers. So that's how the LM stool was, was born. And it's interesting because now I'm not the only designer they work with. They work with other designers as well, a few architects as well. So I think it kind of showed and manifested the power of design and introducing design to spaces or even even factories um, who already kind of have design integrated in them but are not kind of collaborating with other designers. That's fantastic that it gave them the confidence to really sort of develop that area. I mean, it's a very appealing stool and a useful one because it's mobile and easy to carry because of the shape. But can you explain what was it in the, the established production process that um, determined the shape? So actually, the, the shape was determined by the fact that it was important to kind of make sure that the stool was as stable, um, as, stable as possible and we couldn't really introduce too many parts. So we had to create one leg. And again, considering the assembly line. So what I did was, after creating that, the, um, the bend that you see, I kind of started subtracting out of that, which is why you see the, 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 the curved cutout shape. And the idea was to kind of reduce the amount of steel that was being used so that it's lightweight. Again, I wasn't really thinking about the form or the beauty of it. It was more, how can we design something that's a bit practical, made out of steel, probably doesn't have, just has one leg, or maybe no legs exist, <laughs> as some people say. But basically subtracting um, from the form, from the simple form and shape um, to come up to come up with that existing shape that you see. So a great exercise in design economy. And final question about the stool. What does LM stand for? <laughs> LM is the, my best friend's name, Lanry Masha, actually, because it's an interesting story Aww. about... <laughs> it's an interesting story about the economy of design because I had spent a lot of money prototyping, um, going back and forth with the factory. And of course, I just started the studio and I ran out of money. And I just called, I called my friend to be like, look, I need this last prototype because I need to kind of, I think I have this design on lock and I want to be able to kind of visualize it before I ask the, the company to produce it. So he ended up sending me 
the money that I needed to create the last prototype. And I named the stool right after him. Oh, well, that is a lovely story. You're an old sentimentalist uh, at heart. So we'll move on and I will ask you again to explain the reasons for the name. The next project is it's uh, one that, well, a stool is obviously a very functional object, but this is a super functional object. This is the FCBC portable hand washing station, which you designed during the COVID crisis. So FCBC actually stands for, for the community by the community. And of course, I think it speaks a lot on, I would, talk, I would dive into the object and the project. So it'll kind of speak to the name itself as well. So I think during COVID, um, I was actually still working at Mass Design Group as a consultant in Rwanda. And of course, with COVID happening, I had to move, I had to rush back to Lagos before lockdown um, to be with my family. Um, so I got to Lagos and after a couple of weeks staying indoors, a lot of the artisans kept calling me, the artisans who I've worked with for years kept calling, asking if there were any opportunities or if there's anything that they could do because with lockdown, they weren't able to feed themselves or their family. So what I eventually did was I said, okay, maybe we have to figure out a way to sustain ourselves. And if there's actually something that we can do during lockdown that could also help our community to reduce the spread of COVID. So after talking to um, a bunch of friends, a bunch of um, designer friends, I realized that there was an opportunity here to kind of create not just an object, but also economic viability for the artisans themselves. So I reached out to uh, a friend, Dr. Mambi, and spoke to her about this idea. But I also spoke to her because I realized that this project in itself had to be extremely research-driven for, for various reasons, of, co of course, but for various stakeholders who we were going to be engaging with. And one of the main stakeholders that we were looking to engage with before actually designing or that we engaged with before actually designing were of course nurses, doctors, and various people in Lagos who were already just on the field helping out as much as possible. So we, discussed, we had discussions with them for a couple of weeks and realized that maybe a hand washing station was actually the simplest thing to make, but also the most effective thing to make as well. So after carrying out that research, we started identifying various healthcare uh, facilities in Lagos again, speaking to them and also even going there, of course, with our masks on, visiting a few and understanding how their hand washing stations have integrated into their spaces. So after all of this, we went back to the drawing board and then I started speaking to Dr. Mambi about the opportunity of sort of collaborating with the artisans to create this hand washing station. And the reason for, I, I bring up uh, Dr. Mambi was because ethnography and anthropometric data was extremely important when we started this design process. Because again, the reason why I mentioned the ethnographic side of things is that there's a cultural aspect to what hand washing actually <laughs> means. <laughs> In Nigeria and how many how people wash their hands and how people sort of interact with sinks or if they even wash their hands um, etc 
and for for us for me as a designer i wanted to focus on that but at the same time again consider the the artisans and see if the artisans could actually meet a lot of the specifications that we needed for the hand washing station to be um, as effective and as clinically approved as possible so i think going back and forth with them and kind of ideating with the with the artisans i realized that okay it was possible and this was this was a heavy collaboration for them to understand the what the why um, and also the how so what we were designing for why so actually speaking to them about the brief and then the how was of course how it was actually going to be made and again trying to create an opportunity for them i already knew from from early stages that this of course no one would claim ownership to this design and it was going to be open source so that they themselves if they eventually want to make a hand washing station for their community or sustain themselves they would be able to make it so eventually we made a few prototypes we tested it in a few hospitals in lagos and we got the all clear and the beautiful thing about the hand washing station i think that made it interesting and a lot of people gravitate towards it is that it wasn't stationary so it was able to move from ward to ward when doctors needed it and then it was also kind of integrated into the way water was actually being supplied to hospitals through channels such as like a Merua cart, so a, 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 a cart that carries water around um, suburbs in Lagos in um, 25 litre kegs and then just replacing it in, in the hand washing station as well. So I think for me, I learned a lot as a designer with, that, with the um, project. I was humbled by it. And I think that the community kind of benefited, even though we haven't mass produced it yet, the benefit actually was that the artisans, of course, were able to sort of sustain themselves by making a few of the hand washing stations during lockdown and also being able to actually make it without us being a part of the making process as well and creating some for their, for their community to use. So a, a fantastic story. And then now um, the third project that you chose to talk about is a, another completely different project, and that's the M2 shelf. Yes. So, I mean, I w I, to be honest with you, M2 doesn't mean anything. It sounds, I feel like... I actually just came up with I came up with the name randomly after being frustrated trying to come up with a name because, I mean, in... in I'm, I'm Yoruba and names mean a lot. So when you're trying to name a child or name an object or something, it always the pressure of like creating a name, it it's, can actually be a lot. So for this one, I just thought of something random. And the first thing I thought of for some strange reason was M2. And again, this, I think with every product I've designed, or that I, because I feel like I'm still a young designer, I'm learning quite a lot. And with this object, I did learn quite a bit when it comes to trying to figure out what it means to design in Africa or design products from my own personal perspective. Um, and one of the reasons why I chose this object was because it was actually, from the beginning, knowing fully well that I, I was, I was going to design a shelf 
I wanted to design something that wasn't predictable form-wise, but then also kind of probably wouldn't sit well with traditional design, so to speak. <laughs> and the reason why I say this is because the thing that was swirling around my, my head when I wanted to design a shelf was the Vitsu shelf that Dieter Rams had designed, I think in the 60s. And everyone loves that shelf, and I do love the shelf as well. I think it's an amazing um, design object. But I remember that growing up in, um, in Lagos and even in Zambia, a lot of the objects that I grew up with weren't as hidden, so to speak. Um, and in Dieter's words, not as uh, unobtrusive. <laughs> so to speak. So I wanted to design something that spoke to, to people around me, um, how they grew up with objects, um, and also how we kind of interact with objects as well. So for me, I wanted to design an object that was extremely obtrusive, so I but consider it to also a design language. And I think that's how the M2 shelf form was kind of built. And it was actually inspired by various statues that I had seen growing up. The form was designed by various statues I had seen growing up. But I wanted, again, looking at old age and new technology, the new technology being the, um, the steel part of the, um, of the shelf, kind of combining those aspects and thought process to kind of create the shelf itself. So it kind of, the reason why I said I learned a lot from this object was that it kind of opened my eyes to embracing inwardly what design means to me and trying figuring out as I go along what design is or can be in a West African setting or a setting um, a Lagos or Nigerian setting. It it is fascinating because if you look at the stool. It is. I mean, it's a very beautiful object, but it's a very rational, I would say, son or grandson of Dieter Ram's style object. Whereas the M2 shelf, obviously, there's the collision of colours, textures, forms, still very elegant. I think there's a bit of Dieter in you, even when you're playing with all those um, codes. But do you, <laughs> so it's very interesting that you're also using that visual language to define your work and root it in Lagos specifically and West Africa in, in general. How would you like your practice to develop in, in future? So far, and obviously this is a way that many young designers begin their careers, you've really focused on designing small editions of furniture and other objects, like the stool and the, the shelf. Do you plan to continue with that, or is your long-term objective to design for mass production? I think, I mean, I have, I, I've designed mass-produced objects, being part of an engine in a, in a, in a telecommunications company, so designing smartphones that had to be mass-produced and distributed across um, Africa. And for me, the most important thing that I learned from that was there's a lot of waste <laughs> that goes to creating mass-produced objects. And you kind of, I think the beauty 
that I'm learning or getting from creating objects that are being batch produced is I'm trying to figure out how to be extremely considerate when it comes to creating number of objects and making sure that I'm just making enough. So I think from my own standpoint, I would love for the studio to still kind of collaborate with people, of course, outside the studio um, and companies to create um, objects that maybe could be mass produced, but focus a lot more on batch production um, and limited editions. But that's not to say, the reason why I'm saying my own point of view is that I also think that it's important to consider the masses when it comes to design, and that's how design in, design in itself could be implemented quicker. I think it's important, but I think policies have to be put in place. So what materials are we using? How is the government looking at um, the consideration of the cycle of, of a product, for example? So I think for me, mass production is important but without policies they can always they, they can be a terrible shift into like into um waste so i think i hope that answers your your question it does and also the timing is interesting because obviously every country has an urgent need to do that but here in in the west with hyper industrialized cultures that's had to be sort of retrofitted which it would be crazy to make this just repeat the same mistakes that have been made in North America, Western Europe, and so on, when the country has an opportunity to sort of get things right, not at the very start, but nearer the the start. And, and if we could talk more generally about your role in design within Africa in general and West Africa in particular, you're obviously part of a, a new generation of African, not only African designers, but architects and engineers who've chosen to work on the continent. And of course, a growing number of designers from the African diaspora are also living and working in Africa. But what does African design mean to you? And does it make sense to talk about it or even West African design, given the huge scale, the complexity, the extreme eclecticism of the continent and, and the region? In other words, is it too lazy and loose a term and do we need a different one? Of course, Africa is vast and we have cultures, as many cultures as possible in different parts of Africa. Even in one country alone, of course, there's a vast majority of tribes and intriguing ways of how we live our lives and the materials we kind of interact with. So in that sense, there's a vast difference when it comes to, quote-unquote, what design is or what making is in Africa. But from practicing in West Africa and also East Africa, and again, living in Southern Africa, I think that one thing that I find very common and true is that African design is heavily contextual to material, to the place, and to the people. And it's also extremely considerate. It's not just considerate to even just the usage, but even from an emotional standpoint. I think uh, a good example is the fact that a lot of, um, I'm looking at the vernacular design that I've sort of been investigating and these anonymously designed objects. Their um, life cycle or material cycle, so to speak, keeps changing maybe every, five years 
now that I've started the research and identifying this, is that the quali, for example, was made out of plywood for, for a long time. Um, and then after a couple of years, eventually it's now moved into cardboard because that's what's more readily available because of the shipment of products into Lagos using cardboard and styrofoam. These qualies are being made out of cardboard and styrofoam. So I think if I was to kind of generalize it, I think context is always extremely important um, and considerate. And I think there's a term that's floating around now, but I think it's always been part of Africa's DNA, which is hyperlocal. We tend to think extremely hyperlocal, again, when it comes to understanding, using what's readily available to us and being extremely resourceful. So I think for me that that's, that's my thoughts and approach towards it. And, and in theory, this is an important and exciting time to be a designer in Africa, particularly in West Africa, because the region is growing at such a frenzied pace and you've got major infrastructure programs like the Trans-West African Coastal Highway, which are underway. What do you believe are the key opportunities for designers now and also the challenges and how would you like the design scene to develop in the future? So it's, it's funny that you say that um, there's so much opportunity because I, I, I believe so full-heartedly and that's why even the research project that I'm doing that's looking at these anonymously designed objects is actually called Africa Designers Utopia because I feel like there's a lot happening here and there are loads of opportunities here as well. I think one of the, the, the things that we don't really talk about is the raw talent that's also in Africa as well and the, the hunger to kind of create and innovate. So I see that as an opportunity to kind of figure out how we can engage younger people into design through learnings and through understanding with this research approach that we're, um, this research that we're, we're carrying on in the studio. I think that with all that's been said, especially with the introduction of like opening up borders, I think all of it won't matter if they're not put, again, if there are no policies in place. I think if no consideration is being taken to how design can be integrated into society, then again, all of it doesn't matter. Um, if we're not thinking about producing or manufacturing for ourselves and kind of engaging with citizens um, in various countries or indigenous factories, none of it will matter. So I'm, 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 I'm an optimist um, and I'm very optimistic, but I feel like all of this tends to be said a few times um, and it keeps being brought up one, uh, maybe for a couple of years now, but no one's really talking about the most important thing, which is how we're going to sort of benefit from all of this. I think it's just been said but the benefit, the, we haven't really figured out yet um, how we can sort of implement or put things in place when it comes to design, manufacturing, and maybe distribution um, effectively. Mm -hmm. and, and obviously in terms of 
recycling and sort of managing the end of a product's useful life cycle more responsibly, which is the big part that's missing, sadly, in so many countries. And of course, there's so much excitement about Leslie Locco's uh, Venice Architecture Biennale and by positioning Africa as the laboratory of the future. I mean, that syncs so neatly with your vision of design on the, the continent that hopefully will unlock a constructive change. These are the right steps. I think these are one of the, this is probably one of the most important times, especially Leslie having this, uh, this platform and I think she's doing a tremendous and fantastic job engaging the continent as well um, especially through her programming in Ghana again I think that that in itself is such a beautiful way to kind of introduce an architectural policy um, through education of course um, so for me I'm, I'm excited about the Venice Biennale I'm excited for, for the future of um, architecture and design in Africa um, and I think I wish Leslie all the best. I think already we're all behind her and excited to see the outcome. So Nif, thank you so much for sharing your work with us. And for everyone listening, you can find images of all the projects that Nif has talked about on our Instagram feed, design.emergency. Thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to welcoming you back to the Design Emergency podcast very soon, when we'll be talking to another incredible force in design now and in the future. Goodbye.